Okay, so <clears throat> what I would like to talk about tonight is insight. Can you hear at the back? No? Uh, tonight I want to talk about insight. And when, when the Buddha taught, oftentimes he was quite fond of uh, presenting maps, maps of the path, maps of, of uh, our, our potential, really. And in a way, that's partly what I want to do tonight. I want to try and give a kind of overview uh, or a conceptual framework, a possible map uh, for insight. And ask this question, what actually is insight? What is it that we're trying to do? I feel quite strongly that it's actually important for us as practitioners to be quite clear about what it is that we're trying to do in practice. So if, if that's a bit vague, and it, it can, can actually take a long time to get clear, but it's quite important that that is becoming clear over time. So this attempt, I'm going to attempt to kind of paint a bigger picture and overview a conceptual framework. Now I know, uh, just from meeting and talking to so many people, that some people love uh, to have the bigger picture and the conceptual framework and, and the map. It's, uh, they find it very exciting and helpful. And other personality types and just the ways people learn uh, don't like that. It somehow doesn't uh, light their fire. It, it somehow confuses things for them. So if you're in that second camp, um, apologies for tonight, uh, it's just one talk, <laughs> but um, and hopefully uh, there'll still be something in there for you. I'm also aware of attempting to cover a lot of territory tonight um, in, in this talk, and so I hope it doesn't overwhelm anyone. Um, in a way, you can kind of just sit back and hear about the possibilities and hear this bigger picture. It's one possible map. Um, but still, still engage, and, and there's some. Maybe it just plants seeds, something or other plants seeds. Maybe there's something particular, and hopefully, there's something for everyone, uh, something uh, for everyone here. W one other thing I should say, in uh, almost as a, as a preface, is in in drawing a map of the path or, or the potential. To, to be aware of how one's listening. Uh, for some people, it's very exciting to, to hear ab about the potential. Um, for others, it can be that the comparing self uh, comes in. Now, I, I feel, again, quite strongly that it's important for us to have goals in our practice, in our life, to have beautiful, deep, noble aspirations. The rub the important thing is what's the relationship to them? So is it about measuring the self or is it about just about the heart's yearning? Okay, so just, just to be aware as you're listening, if that comes up and how one's listening, what, what the heart qualities are that come up. Okay, so what is insight? And we use this word, of course, all the time. We talk about insight, meditation, etc., one kind of pretty simple definition we could say, could say, insight, could say, is a seeing or an understanding that brings a kind of dissolution or a, a decrease 
in the dukkha, a decrease in suffering, dis-ease, dissatisfaction in that moment. So I'll say that again. Any seeing or understanding that brings some degree of dissolving or lessening of dis-ease, dissatisfaction, discontent, dukkha, suffering. So that seeing could be very intuitive, it could be intellectual, but it's not just intellectual because it has to go into the, into the being in a way that transforms our uh, suffering in that moment. Okay. Now this could be in uh, any situation and in relationship to any experience. So, for example, on a very mundane level, so very everyday level, um, I might have a difficult interaction with someone. Something difficult comes up between us. Or they do something that uh, rubs me the wrong way. And I go and I try and talk to them about it. And I start accusing them and calling them names and saying, you are like this and you da-da-da-da-da. What generally, generally, what one will find if I do that is all it does is create more suffering. Okay? If I start accusing someone, start calling them names, putting them down, it's just going, they're basically going to throw it right back at me or, or shut down. It's not uh, that they're uh, experiencing suffering coming from that, and probably I will too. So very, very, very simple. When I see that, and when I see it clearly enough in that moment, most people will then, organically, there will be a kind of dropping, and say, okay, how else can I go about communicating this? Okay, very, very simple, very everyday. That's an insight. I see there's suffering being produced here by the way I'm speaking, by the way I'm approaching this, and, and, I, and I drop that and there's less suffering. So on one end, something very, very simple and kind of everyday, all the way, a whole spectrum of, of possible insights to the most subtle, the most uh, profound and, and transcendent possibilities of insight. And all that is insight in the sense that there is the possibility of lessening suffering. There's the, the, the seeing, the understanding that brings less suffering. So one helpful division to begin with, and t- take it with a pinch of salt, uh, but it's helpful in the sense that it can help us to make sure we're filling out the fullness of the path, the comprehensiveness of, of, of the path and, and what the Buddha is offering. So one possible helpful division is to divide insights into three categories. Personal, personal insights, universal insights, and what we might call ultimate insights. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit what I mean. So this is just, it's not a rigid, there's nothing rigid here, it's just an arbitrary thing. But it can help make sure that we're filling out the whole of what the path is offering. So what does this mean? Personal, what's a personal insight? Or personal insights. For instance, knowing one's uh, patterns and habits, one's particular patterns and habits. What are my tendencies? What are my typical reactions in situations, either in solitude or in relationship, or in a certain social situation? So I have uh, good friends, they're a married couple, and one of the patterns they get into as as a couple is that uh, she 
kind of doesn't is is blind to his needs and they talk about this and they're, they're conscious about it. they're both very conscious human beings but that's a kind of pattern a personal pattern in the dynamic of the relationship so he might be hungry or thirsty or something and she doesn't see it okay so it's just it's just a a simple example there or it might be again in another kind of social situation is it my pattern to assume that um, I'm better than others, or assume that I'm worse than others, assume that others are wrong and that I have it right, or that they're right and I'm wrong. These are, oftentimes we have, we have tendencies here, and it's important to know what's my pattern. All kinds of uh, instances like that. What are my particular weaknesses and my particular strengths? not to overlook uh, what my strengths are. Oftentimes we do. We're very focused on our weaknesses. It's very easy to get obsessed and only look at one's weaknesses and not actually be conscious of what one's strengths on the path are. But both need to be known. So for example, Sometimes people find themselves on, on a kind of spectrum of duality and it, doesn't, it really doesn't need to be a duality, but sometimes people find themselves, for example, that there's a lot of clarity and the ability to think clearly and uh, see clearly in situations, but the heart may be not so open. There isn't such a richness of emotion, a richness of the emotional life. Or the opposite. There's a lot of richness, there's a lot of, of movement and uh, uh, upsurge in the emotional life. A lot of openness there. But it's at the expense of clarity. But just to see where one is on that spectrum, it actually doesn't even need to be a spectrum. So one can have both a, a beautifully rich emotional life and the clarity as well. It doesn't need to be a duality. But these kind of things, this is personal insights. What is our story, the story that we tell ourselves about our life and our history? This this is huge for us most of the time. And is the story that we're telling ourselves about ourselves and that we tell others about our life, is it helpful or not? So it's for us as human beings and, and, and trying to be conscious human beings, trying to walk the path, it's actually really important to embrace our story and to investigate our story and our past and what's happened to us. And it can open us up to aspects of ourselves and aspects of feeling, etc. But are we stuck in the story or identified with the story? Because we don't have to be. And the story that we tell ourselves about our life, it can never ever be the whole truth. It can never be the whole truth. We have a tendency to kind of shrink and wrap our identity around a story. It can never ever be the whole truth of who we are. So a story is something we can actually use skillfully. And that's the question. Am I using, am I relating to my story in a helpful way? The story is not written in stone. The story of my life is not written in stone. 
And so I did this and this happened and I went through this and then this fell apart or whatever. It's actually not written in stone. It's more malleable than we might think, our story. And are we telling ourselves a story? Are we relating to the story in a way that's actually helpful to us, that's inspiring, that's uplifting, that's moving us onward? Or are we telling ourselves a story and relating to a story that's keeping us stuck? So all this is in the realm of of personal insight and really, really important uh, work for all of us to do. We talk about universal insight and what that might mean. This is something that's true for all of us, whereas one person might have a particular pattern or, or another pattern on the personal level. Universal insights are true for all. So something like impermanence is true for everyone. It's true for all things. All things are impermanent. And this whole area of universal insights, again, needs a lot of attention. We really need to explore uh, what is it about life that's universally true. So impermanence is a very good example. Another one might be um, just something like, it's a really good idea to practice meditation. You know, that's an insight. It's an insight. It's clear. That's really, it's something one knows, and it leads to a decrease in suffering. Similarly, it's really good, like we just chanted the, uh, the precepts. It's a really good idea. It leads to less suffering to keep the precepts. These are insights. Universal insights. They're true for everyone. Always true. Really good, really helpful, really brings less suffering to practice generosity. You know, the power of generosity to open the heart, to open the consciousness, to start um, dissolving the boundaries we create between self and other. These are all insights. Kindness. Again, the power of kindness, the importance of kindness. Massively important universal insight. Kindness leads to less suffering. Kindness leads to happiness. So there's a lot in here uh, in terms of universal insights about what it is that leads to happiness and what it is that leads to suffering. And there are very, I'm not talking about I like chocolate ice cream and this other person likes vanilla, very, very universal kindness, generosity, uh, etc. lead to happiness, lead to a decrease of suffering. So insights like that, and this is true for all insight, is that sometimes we can have the assumption, maybe perhaps based on what we've read or heard, that an insight is a kind of one-off thing. It bursts into consciousness, I see it, and then that's it, my life is changed from that, and I never forget that. It's, not, it's very rarely, the, it does happen, but it's very rarely the case. Most of the time, insights are not one-off experiences, and they actually need repeating. Uh, and in the repeating, they deepen, they deepen, and they move into the, into the very fabric of the being, into the very cells of the being. So one knows in, in an unshakable way, one knows unshakably the, the power of generosity, the importance of generosity. And it's not something that any kind of advertisement or someone saying this or some condition or other can, sh- can, can shake, because it's been repeated over and over, that insight. So we talk about the personal and the universal as, as realms of insight. What, what they, in a way, have to do with is 
our capacity to be with and respond skillfully to care for the relative world, the world of body, of mind, of feelings and emotions, of relationships, of our relationship to work. All of that, uh, our relationship to all of that is in the realm of personal insight and universal insight, caring for, responding for, being, responding to, being aware of. Then we could also talk about ultimate insights or insights into what is ultimate. Something seen so deeply into the nature of things, I'll go into, this, go into all of these uh, more detail in the talk. Something seen so deep, it's, it's beyond even concepts and it liberates deeply, completely, profoundly. There's something that we can't even, it's beyond impermanence, it's beyond, uh, beyond all of that. Something that the mind can't really get around completely. And that brings the deepest freedom. And it's an important question, I think, for all of us to ask, or keep asking, in my life, is there equal attention and equal interest to what we could say the relative world and the ultimate? And again, it's interesting just meeting so many people and moving between different sanghas, because sometimes different groups of practitioners have different kind of leanings with this. But in my life, in my practice, what am, I, am I leaning one way or another? Is my, am I seeing my practice only in terms of uh, kind of responding to and finding an ease with and getting to know and working through the relative world of body, mind, feelings, relationships, work, etc., etc. Or am I so concerned with the ultimate truth of things that I actually don't pay enough attention to the world of the relative world of relationships and taking care of the body, taking care of the heart, and that? Just to, again, to know oneself, where's the balance? They're, the middle way says they're, they're equally deserving of attention. So is that true for me? And if not, actually why not is a very good question. Why not? Okay. As practitioners we sit and walk and we, we try and be mindful in our daily life and, and we practice. There's Two modes, and this, this is very important, I really want to stress this. There's two modes uh, of, two modes, two ways that insight deepens, okay? The first is, pr- is by far the most common, it's by far the most common that, that one comes across. It's that insight arises by itself. One is practicing, one's being mindful, one's paying attention to experience. And we, we say, we have an insight, or I get an insight. I suddenly see something, I suddenly understand something. Because of the mindfulness, because of the stillness, such an insight arises. And not to underestimate at all the power of simply sort of being present for experience, being present for life, showing up, being open, simply 
being with experience in an ongoing way without putting any pressure on it. Simple mindfulness. Not to underestimate the power of that. And insights do arise. They do arise. They do come up. Uh, more classically, the Buddha actually puts it that sila, ethical care, and samadhi actually are, the, are, are uh, the, the, the soil for insight arising. So that's one way, and it's probably the most common way that we expect insight to deepen, is a kind of arising of insight through just paying attention moment to moment in an ongoing way, trying to be mindful. There's the mindfulness, and out of that we hope, we expect and, and it happens that insight arises. But there's another kind of leaning, another approach, another mode that I really want to kind of draw out because I think it's really important. And that's what we could say using insight or consolidating insight. So I'll explain what I mean. Sometimes we are mindful and an insight comes up or, or we're on a retreat or whatever and an insight comes up and it might be into impermanence, it might be into the necessity of loving kindness, it might be anything like that. And then a little time goes by and we lose touch with that insight. We, it, it, its sense of potency, its sense of aliveness, we, we kind of forget it a little bit. Okay. It seems so powerful, so present, so wow in the moment, perhaps. And then just... Sometimes it's just a matter of minutes goes by. Sometimes it's more like months or even years. But something needs to happen. A few things are, are possible. One is we need to, in our life, act on the basis of that insight, even when the insight uh, it feels like we've lost touch with it, like it's faded. Okay. So if we've seen, for example, um, the, the emptiness of the self, if we've seen the necessity of loving-kindness, the power of generosity, the necessity of generosity, if we've seen that, there will come a time when that sense fades. In other words, the, the sense of the insight just it, it recedes, it dies down, and just everyday mind comes back. Very normal to be expected. But we, we have a capacity, once it's faded, to act as if that insight were still alive for us and make choices in our life based on that. So a lot of times, it's almost like we're in a situation in life where we're sort of on a fence, and we can kind of flop down one way or flop down another way. And it's almost like if acting as if that insight were alive, and what would it be to just flop down, uh, to choose in, in line with that insight? in line with the knowing of the importance of generosity, in line with the knowing of the emptiness of self, whatever it is. What that does is it strengthens the insight and makes it accessible again. So in a kind of, I don't know what you call it, backward feedback thing, it, it strengthens and re-enlivens that insight, keeps it alive and gives it more strength. I think it was Ayakamo who said, you know, insights are like muscles. And if you don't use them, they atrophy. So we need to use insight. The insight arising in meditation is just the beginning of something. It's really just the beginning. And if there's one thing I want to emphasize tonight, it's that. That's just the beginning. And it's like opening a door. And then we have to step through the door and actually walk along a certain path. 
So that's choosing as if that insight was alive, choosing from the, from the perspective of that insight. But there's something that applies even more to our formal practice here, and that is what I call developing modes of seeing. I'll explain what I mean. <clears throat> so let's take impermanence. Oftentimes a person is, again, just being mindful uh, very conscientiously. And what begins to stand out is the fact of impermanence. Everything is just this parade of arising, passing. Everything, everything, everything. Rather than just accept that as an insight, so, ah, I'm seeing impermanence, tick, done. Actually beginning then to take that as a starting point and develop a mode of seeing that, that tunes in to impermanence deliberately. Or again, it could be the emptiness of self. So we have a sense, wow, everything's just happening. It doesn't really belong to me. And again, taking that as, as a new, that what was an arrival point, taking it as a new departure point. What is it to start looking at things and seeing them as not self, seeing them as just happening, and then developing that as a mode of seeing, a kind of lens uh, which one sustains. In the same way that one sustains mindfulness, one sustains a mode of seeing. It could, could be a lot of things. So there's insight as a result, I'm just being mindful, I'm just practicing, and here it comes as a result, aha, and it feels good. Or there's insight as a kind of process of using, a process of using insight and developing it and deepening a certain way of looking. Now both of these are important. Both are important. Oftentimes I do see people resistant, uh, for different reasons, to the second way, to a more deliberate developing of modes of seeing. And it's curious, I often wonder why. Sometimes people think, I'm just not together enough to do this. It sounds too advanced, or I have too much stuff going on, or, or I just want to be, I just want to be simple. It feels like too much doing. But to investigate these resistances, because they actually don't hold water too much. So we actually don't need to do just one or just another. Both are available to us. And it's not that we always work in one mode or, or another. There's a kind of passive receiving of insight and a deliberate, a deliberate mode of seeing, de developing of a mode of seeing that's, that's consolidating and deepening certain insights. You consolidate the insight of impermanence. You consolidate the insight of anatta. You learn to look at things as not-self. So it becomes almost like a, a little bit like a switch. The mind gets so used to it, you can just switch the mind into a mode of seeing things as not-self. So right now it's just, okay, just start seeing the body sensations as not-self. Start seeing the voice and the thoughts as not-self. It just becomes that, that familiar. The mind can just move between these modes of seeing. If we confine ourselves to just being mindful, I, I, I think it's very probable that it won't be enough. It's very probable that it won't be enough just to be simply mindful. 
is so we see and people report I saw this and I saw the aversion come up and I was practicing and then I saw the desire come up or I had this lovely experience and I saw that I wanted it to stay or I saw that I wanted it back or whatever it is and there's a knowing there's the mindfulness of etc I don't Sometimes it's enough just to see it. So in that moment, it can dissolve it, sometimes. But as a complete strategy for the sort of dissolving, a deep dissolving of, of the, what we call the kilesas, the force of aversion and greed in our life, I don't think the mindfulness will be enough. It's, it's not going to exhaust it just by looking at it. I just sit and I just mindful and I just see over and over again there's aversion, there's wanting, there's aversion. I'm not sure that that at the deepest level will cut through and dissolve. Okay? Now other people will, will say differently but I'm, I'm here and I'm talking so <laughs> you get my opinion. Um, but I don't know that it has that deep power enough at a really deep level. What we want, I feel, is to learn to look so that that aversion decreases, so that that greed decreases, that we have ways of looking that dissolve it right then and there. Actually, we have a whole, perhaps, array or toolbox of ways of looking that dissolve it right there. Can I learn, and it's, it's a learning, it's a developing of a skill, developing skills of ways of looking that decrease uh, aversion and greed and, and delusion and suffering. Why? Because as unenlightened beings, our perception of things, all things, our perception of things is actually fundamentally flawed. There's something very basically uh, mistaken about the way we apprehend things, inner and outer things. That's what the Buddha calls delusion. There's a fundamental mistaking in the way we perceive things. And unless we actually address deliberately that fundamental mistaking, uh, there's going to be no end to the kilesas, because the kilesas of greed, aversion, wanting, uh, getting rid of, etc., they come out of this fundamental mistaking. So somehow we've got to look at that fundamental mistaking and, and kind of jig it around until, it, until we learn different ways of looking, different ways of seeing. So one, sometimes I, I, I like to kind of define insight meditation, and again, it's just, just my definition, but I like to define it as learning ways of looking that lead to freedom. Insight meditation is actually something huge. To me, it's not just a narrow technique at all, but to me, that kind of sums up what we're doing. We're learning ways of looking that lead to freedom. That's a small thing to say, but it's a big thing to say. So the Buddha, at the, at the, at the, the sort of fundamental, his, his core teaching, as many of you I'm sure know, was the Four Noble Truths. And there is suffering, there is cause for suffering, and there is the possibility of the ending of suffering, and then there's what leads to the ending of suffering. Now we could put that kind of in a shorthand version. So here I am sitting, walking, standing, shopping, whatever it is, going about my life, and I notice suffering, 
And as practitioners, we want to be sensitive to the arising of suffering. And notice suffering. Okay, there's suffering. It's the first noble truth. What is contributing to this suffering? So this is uh, repeating what I said the other morning. Uh, yes, was it yesterday morning? Until we're completely and utterly enlightened, until we're Buddhas, there's always something that the mind and the heart is doing that's adding unnecessary dukkha. All, that's always going. There's no judgment here. It's just a quality of being an unenlightened consciousness. There's always something that's adding unnecessary dukkha. So that's where the second noble truth is. What's, what's the cause of it? How am I, how is the mind or the heart contributing to this dukkha? How is it sustaining it? Okay, so it becomes... A moment of suffering becomes alive with an investigation. And there is always something, in fact there's usually more than just one something, there's usually a number of things that the mind is doing. It's a bit like, I don't know what you call it here, that, that, or it's a bit like a house of cards. Okay? So suffering is like a house of cards. It's, it's built, it's held in place by lots of things that the mind unwittingly is actually erecting. We learn to see what they are, and we learn to actually take... Did you play this game when you were kids? Like you build... Ca- yeah, no. You build cards and you, you kind of... Um, if one pulls the right cards out, the suffering decreases. And that's what we're learning to do as insight meditators. So this question... How is the mind, how is the heart, how is the perception contributing to and sustaining this dukkha? And again, it can be a, a huge range of subtlety or, or grossness. So it could be that something is going on that's difficult, and we're aware of it, but we've just gone into a bit of a, a kind of ongoing grumbling about it. Uh, it's quite, I live and teach mostly in England, so that's quite, I don't know, some of you might know, it's quite an English uh, characteristic to just grumble Grumble, grumble. <laughs> and quite quietly, so not too many people hear you, but, but to grumble. And actually, it accomplishes nothing except making oneself more miserable. And so just keeping the suffering in place. And so I'm aware of it. And one thinks, I'm, I'm being aware of it, and I'm reporting it. And, or I'm discussing it with friends. But actually, it's just an ongoing grumbling. That's a gross level. Uh, again, going back to what, what I said earlier about the story, is there something about the, 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 bring, the way that I'm bringing in my story that's, that's keeping the suffering in place, that's holding this whole thing in place? Is there something in the way that I'm seeing this, that I'm viewing this situation, this pain in the body, this heartache, this sadness, this irritation, this other person, something in the way that I'm seeing it, something in the way that I'm viewing it, something in the way that I'm reacting to it that's keeping the suffering in place? The answer is always yes. It's always yes. And the question is, what is it? Or what are they? Which ones do I, can I develop in this moment the capacity to actually take out that card, actually see, oh, this one I can play with, this one I can shift the view, this one, this little thing I can let go of. So sometimes, it's amazing, it's amazing, sometimes we know what the problem is and we don't do anything about it. We know, we're kind of half aware of how we're keeping the suffering in place and somehow we're I don't know what it is, addicted to it, enjoying it. 
this principle of a kind of, I used this word the other day, scaffolding that keeps suffer, suffering in place, keeps discontent in place. Again, it's very gross, you know, it gets very gross and extremely subtle, extremely subtle. And again, the whole spectrum for investigation, for, for awakening too. So at the most subtle uh, end, the most minute, subtle movement of intention can be enough to create suffering, to create an experience of suffering. Or the, the most subtle kind of deluded looking, just the sense of there's a real object for a real subject. It's a very, very subtle uh, level of delusion. Okay, so developing ways of looking that bring freedom. Classically, uh, in, in Theravada, we talk about the three characteristics. And so just to go briefly in, into them. The first one is impermanence. Again, these are ways of looking that we can develop. first one is impermanence, change, uh, uh, instability. <coughs> Anicca is the Pali word. Now, at one level... This is extremely obvious. A- any, you stop any human being above the age of four and say, are things impermanent? And they're going to say yes. So it's very clear to us that things are impermanent. What we want is to move that into being an insight that's helpful to us. Again, this mode of seeing, this way of looking, that we're actually deepening a channel that's freeing. Okay? Can I, in my sitting and walking, decide deliberately at times, I'm just interested in impermanence right now, okay? The agenda isn't just mindfulness right now. It's, sure, there's mindfulness there, but I'm just interested in impermanence. That's what I'm tuning into. I'm only interested in impermanence. It's one possibility. If we talk about impermanence, there's actually a number of sort of levels on which it can, on which we can see it. So one level is a big level, uh, death, you know, being aware, living with an awareness of death. So even right now in this moment, there's words, there's sounds, there's this moment, and somehow the awareness of death can encompass this moment, can inform this moment of awareness. It's just, it takes a deliberate reflection in one life, deliberately Deliberately remembering death, deliberately drawing close to the fact of our death. It might sound scary, it might sound depressing, but one finds that it's actually very liberating if one finds the right way of working with it. A sort of more medium level uh, might be... uh, everyday impermanence, meaning that in we wake up in one mood and to track that mood, that mind state through the day. So by, the, by lunchtime, am I in the same mood? Is that, is that the same thing going on? We get very locked in to believing things are going to last. So just track it on a very natural, kind of easeful, everyday level. What's changing every day? The body sensations, the sights, the sounds, the environment, the, the, the inner landscape. More often in insight meditation circles, in this, these particular insight meditations, we talk about tuning into a more, a more fine level of impermanence, kind of moment to moment, seeing the change, 
paying attention to the body sensation, saying, oh, look at that, it's changing, just moment to moment. Uh, the, the, the feeling tone of things, the emotional life, the thought life, sounds changing, 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 moment to moment. That level, very, very useful, very powerful. But they're all actually available. And it's interesting in the, not so much in the sutras, the, the suttas, the original discourses of the Buddha, but more in the commentaries, you get the sense, uh, oftentimes, they report that contemplating impermanence uh, or insight in general should make you feel very agitated and ill at ease and afraid and sort of a tremendous amount of angst and, and, and uh, trembling with it. Um, it can be that that happens sometimes, but actually, I feel that the contemplation of impermanence, the con- all insight, again, it should be what frees. So this should actually bring a kind of calming, should bring a freeing. The taste of insight is release or relief. That's, that's when, when, an in, when insight is humming along, when you're in that, uh, either an insight has come up or you're in that mode of looking, that's the taste of it. It's relief, release much more so than it's fear or agitation or kind of you know, existential angst, much more so. So with these three levels of impermanence, to ask oneself, is the way, if, if I am contemplating impermanence, is the way that I'm contemplating it helpful? Sometimes we assume that the more micro level is the, is the helpful one, but it may not be, it may not be. Is the way that I'm contemplating death, is that helpful or not? So again, to, to learn to play and to um, shape the practice, to encourage the practice to be helpful. And we can feel when it's helpful. We actually feel it. The second uh, characteristic, first one's impermanent, second of the three characteristics is what we call dukkha. And this has a couple of ways you can go about this. One is, one translation of it is that phenomena experience are unsatisfactory. In a way they're unsatisfactory because they're impermanent. So coming from this seeing of their impermanence, everything is just fleeting, just arising, passing. It cannot give me lasting satisfaction. So again, that could be an insight as a result, or it could be, put these goggles on, I put these lenses on, and that's how I'm looking at experience. And it just comes up and I just say, I just see it as unsatisfactory. I'm just, Ajahn Chah says, file it as unsatisfactory. Just look at it. You, you want to have this mode of seeing, it's unsatisfactory, unsatisfactory, because it's impermanent. So that's one way of doing dukkha. I'm mo- again, I'm moving through a lot of territory very quickly, and hopefully there'll be something that uh, you can snatch on here. Another way, and this came up in the question and answers uh, yesterday morning, is to tune in to the presence of grasping. And by grasping, I mean either a pulling towards oneself of what one wants or a pushing away of what one doesn't want. And one feels that when there's mindfulness, particularly mindfulness of the body, the mindfulness of the body is, is open and sensitive, the body actually reflects the presence of grasping. 
it it will tell me by some kind of cramping or tension when there's a pushing away or a pulling. And then can I learn to notice it and to relax it, to let it go? And I practice letting go of pushing away and letting go of pulling. And that becomes the mode of, of working, the, the lens. It's just continually feeling into this presence of pushing, aversion, pulling, uh, craving, and letting it go, letting it go, letting it go. And what happens when I do that? What happens when I do a- any of these that I've talked about so far? Well, what happens is there's less suffering. There's a decrease in suffering, which is the whole point of why we would do it in the first place. There's a decrease in suffering. And one begins to learn to use these modes of seeing and to actually consolidate the insight through, through the practice, through the repetition, and through the, through the decrease of suffering. One sees suffering arises because there's pushing or pulling. Just continually just feeling the pushing and pulling and relaxing it, feeling it and relaxing it, and letting it deepen that way, feeling the, the, the decrease in suffering. That's what, yeah, I'll say that's what should happen. That's what should happen. The third one, the third kind of mode of seeing to practice, I touched on it briefly already, is, is anatta, is seeing things, all things, as not me, not mine. So normally, whether we're aware of it or not, our consciousness is always appropriating things. This sensation is mine, it's happening to me. Or we identify, I am this a depression, I am this mind state, I am this mind, I am this consciousness. When learning to practice a mode of seeing that actually deliberately regards things as not me, not mine, and develops that Takes, take, this is probably, people are different in terms of their favorites. For some people this is the more difficult one. Practicing this disidentification. For some things are easier than others. It's usually easier to disidentify with body than it is with, say, consciousness. But eventually one can learn to let go of the identification with consciousness. It's not me that's being aware. There is awareness. One develops that, that mode of seeing, that lens. Everything, everything, everything. And sustains it, as I said, in the same way that we sustain mindfulness. So what happens is these modes of seeing, these three characteristics, become avenues. And they, they're not just arrival points. It's not just an arrival point to see, ah, this, this thought is not self. I, I am not the thinking mind. It's not just an arrival point. It's, it's actually a beginning. It's an avenue. So where, where does this avenue lead? If we sustain it, if we follow it, where does it lead? Well, as I said already, one thing, and it's major, 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 and we really need to be clear about this, is it leads to less suffering. When I look in a way that's not identified, there is dramatically less suffering. When I learn to relax the tussle with experience, pushing away, pulling, there is less suffering. Okay, really, really important. But actually there's more than that. It goes, it goes even deeper, this avenue, even deeper. Something starts happening to the actual experience itself, to the nature of experience, not just the presence or absence of suffering or the degree of suffering, but actually to the experience itself. I'm getting kind of into deeper waters here, but 
it's important to touch on. Experience starts to fade. It starts to dissolve. When we look at experience these wa- in these ways, in a more sustained way, phenomena themselves begin to dissolve, and it's not just because they're impermanent, it's because of the way we're looking at them. When, when we practice mindfulness with, and with simple attention, just coming back to the present, there is, uh, in time, there is a lessening of the sort of papancha mind, of the complicating, proliferating mind, bringing in all the story and the, the views and the opinions and the this and that. And with that, what happens is it's almost like that was a veil, a, 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 a film over experience, a, a layer of grime over experience. And what begins to happen, people very commonly report this as, as they deepen in, in their mindfulness meditation. As we let that go and we come more into a sort of un, unlayered uh, experience, experience begins to brighten. Our sense of colors, of smells, of tastes, uh, it, it begins to enliven and brighten. It's almost like everything becomes more radiant. The sense of this moment, the sense of the now, be- sometimes, sometimes in practice, begins to kind of sparkle. There's a real intimacy there. Now, it can seem, and this is very, very common, it seems like I see what's happened. I was covering experience up with all this stuff. I've sort of scrubbed that clean, got rid of it, and now I am in contact with the reality of things. And we even have this word in the tradition. Don't think it's a word that the Buddha used. Bear attention. Is that Okay, now I'm in contact with the actual thing, the actual reality of things. So that would be a very common conclusion, very common conclusion. But lovely as that is, that uh, the vividness of that, the, 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 the beauty of it, the brightness of it, the radiance of it, lovely as that is, and beautiful it is, as it is, healing as it is, we want that, and we also don't want to stop there. I'm talking about going into deep practice now. We want to keep letting go, keep practicing these modes of seeing, these avenues of deepening, because what happens is almost like the opposite movement, an experience or phenomena begin to fade. They begin to kind of lose their edges, they begin to dissolve, they begin to blur, and again, it's a spectrum. It's not an on-off switch, but eventually they begin to just, uh, they move into completely disappearing. So the Buddha, there's a quote from the Buddha, to paraphrase, a good practitioner is one who tears down form, tears down feelings, tears down perceptions, tears down mental formations, thoughts and mind states and intentions, and tears down consciousness, dissolves it, scatters it. I don't know how that resonates, you know. Uh, eventually, when, uh, when it's completely torn down, we know what is not built by this house of cards, what is not fabricated, what is not, in the Buddha's words, compounded or concocted. We can know the unfabricated, the unborn. This is where we talk about ultimate insight now. And the Buddha says, 
everything's faded there. And where all phenomena cease, there all ways of speaking cease. So something beyond everything that we're used to in terms of subjects and objects and things and feelings and emotions and thoughts and sounds and all that torn down. So Buddha's using very strong language here to tear down. And again, I'm aware just from experience talking with people about this. As, as I speak right now in this room, people are going to have different reactions to that. For some of you, it will be very new to hear this kind of thing, perhaps. For some, there's a real heart pull. You can't perhaps even explain it, but you hear that language of tearing down, of going beyond, of the unfabricated. Something is moving. And for others, it's horrifying. It seems anti-life somehow. But again, just to, to be aware of it. But the Buddha is using this language. Yikes. So, another quote from the Buddha said, practitioner should be focused on the arising and passing away with regard to the aggregates, that's form, body, and feelings, and thoughts, and perceptions, and the, the whole show. Focused on arising, passing away, but it doesn't stop there, because that sounds like just notice its impermanence. But what he says is, he should know, she, he or she should know, such is form, such is feeling, such is perception, etc., to consciousness. Such is its origination, and such its fading. Meaning, the such doesn't mean just that it arises and that it passes. It means how it arises and how it passes. And he says, understanding that is what brings full liberation. So not just that things come and go, but how they come and go, why they come and go. I'm really hoping this isn't sounding too abstract. But uh, So what we see, if, if we re- re- restate what I said before, what we see is the more that I tussle with experience, the more push-pull there is, the more identification with it, with it there is, not only the more suffering, but the more solid and substantial the experience itself, and the more prominent in consciousness, and the less, then the experience itself gets less. It dies down, it fades. So what does that mean? It means that the thing, the object, the phenomena, experience, life, whatever you want to call it, is not at all independent of the way that I'm looking at it the way that I'm reacting to it, and the view that I have of it. Without my pushing and pulling, without my identification, nothing actually arises. This is completely counterintuitive and and, and radical. Completely. We could say, how much, given I see this fading from one extreme, like things being really solid, really prominent, and then less and less and less, depending on how much I tussle, or depending on how much I identify, less and less, and they dissolve, and they dissolve. How much push and pull reveals the real object, the real phenomena, the real way things are? Is it a lot? Or a kind of medium amount? A little? Can I kind of put the dial on, on zero, you know, it's or five or whatever? 
which is is there a real way things are are things can we even say that they're real or not if they depend on how i'm looking at them they depend on the mind that's looking at them they're completely dependent on the mind that's looking at them so the buddha says they're not real they're not not real they're dependently arising So eventually, and again, please, I'm covering a lot of territory in one talk and painting, painting a map that now I'm really talking about the deep end now, but um, learning to use this l- letting go of the push and pull, learning to use that mode, learning to use this mode of uh, seeing things as not self. And eventually, the insight that things we say are empty, that they don't exist inherently independent of how the mind is fabricating them. That kind of, that insight deepens. And we see that over and over because as we let go of the push and pull, as we let go of identification, we see things fading. And eventually that insight has been consolidated. And eventually one can just look at experience and say, empty, empty, I know you're empty. And that becomes a new mode of seeing. So the whole thing is kind of, it's an avenue that's deepened uh, just, just from following one thing. So what it turns out as, finally what it turns out as, is that everything, everything, including such things that we take for granted as the mind, or awareness, or consciousness, or space, or time, all of that actually is, is built in this way. It's all. So funnily enough, the mind, the awareness too, gets built in this fabricating process. It's a mutual building. It's like two cards leaning on each other. It's all fabricated, it's all built. Not understanding that about all things is what the Buddha calls delusion. So there's an interaction, a dialogue that the Buddha had with a guy named Kachayana a seeker called Kachayana. And he says, he said to Kachayana, he said, ordinary beings, unenlightened beings, think dualistically. They uh, regard both the self and phenomena as it is or it is not. It exists or it does not exist. They regard things and situations as either really real or really not real, gone out of existence. And because of that, they cling. Because of that, we cling. We get into this war with our lives, with experience. And because of that, there's dukkha and there's samsara. And he continues, for those with insight into how phenomena arise and sustain and pass away, in other words, this dependent arising that I've talked about, there is no is and there is no isn't something in the middle. He says that things exist is one extreme, that they do not exist is another. There's something very subtle that he's pointing to. But I accept neither is nor is not, and I declare the truth from the middle position. So what that means, and I'm aware when I talk about this fading and this kind of going beyond, etc., that for some people it's going to sound nihilistic. 
it's going to sound like saying like, well, does that mean nothing exists? And does that mean there nothing's really real and uh, nothing's real at all, etc.? Or it can sound bleak. But the Buddha's not saying that. And it's anything but bleak, anything but bleak. Uh, understanding this middle way, this dependent rising, this emptiness, b- brings indescribable level of freedom and love as well, with it love. And the thing about it is it's really possible for us. It's possible to have a taste of that, to see that opening and see the understanding opening. And with the understanding opening, the whole relationship with life and death opening, transforming, changing. Now, that really is something that's possible for us. So it's less about chasing a certain experience than it is about developing this understanding and consolidating this understanding of emptiness and dependent rising over and over, ultimately. Sometimes people understandably get into the camp of chasing an experience. I want an experience of the deathless. I want da-da-da or whatever it is. Other other extreme is to get into this. Um, it's not about experience at all. Just just be, just be mindful, just uh, watch the show, and as if that was all we're supposed to do and the final arriving point. And it's actually neither. I feel it's it's the understanding that we want to cultivate. This understanding, and it's that that frees. Like I said at the beginning, just aware of covering a lot of territory in, in that and kind of paint, painting quite a, both a wide and a deep picture. And just to be aware of what the mind does with that. And take what feels useful and perhaps the rest plant seeds and, and, and that's absolutely fine. Absolutely fine. Um, there may be something in there that uh, gives you something to think about, something to reflect on. Let's just have a minute of silence together.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.